Today, I want to take you on a scriptural guided tour through the throne room. I want us to enter the throne room in heaven, and I want to see what the scriptures say about what's there. We want to look at the significance of the things that we find, what they mean to us, and how they might be able to be applied to help us. We see this in Revelation chapter 4. We're not going to make our way all the way through this chapter because we have some angels that fly around and worship and then we've got some, the believers that fall before the throne and they worship. I want to look at what they say when they worship in the future and the importance of worship in our lives. But I want to just take a look around the throne room now. Enter with John and take a look around the throne room and see the kind of things that we see. And this is not just a random day in heaven. People often treat Revelation chapter 4 as if it's a random day. This is what happens every day up in heaven. But it's not. It's before the tribulation. There's lightning and thunder and voices on the throne because God's about ready to finally bring his judgment on this earth. God has been patient with mankind. God has been long-suffering. But it is now time to judge the world. We have the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1. We've got the church age in Revelations 2 and 3. In 4, we have the scene in heaven preparing to start the tribulation period. And in chapter 5, we see that the tribulation period starts in heaven. It doesn't start on earth. There's something done in heaven that causes the tribulation period to start on earth. And we're getting the setting in chapter 4 for the event that will start the tribulation period in chapter 5. So that's what we are seeing. And I would like us to... Start back in verse uh, 1 of Revelation chapter 4. I just want to read it. I won't say much about the first few verses we've covered so in depth so far. So verse 1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice, and the first voice came, that I, or the first voice that I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. In chapter 1, verse 19, John was told, Write the things which you see, the things which, which are, and the things which must take place after this. That's the outline of the book of, of Revelation. The thing that is, the vision he sees in chapter 1, the things which are, the, that's the chapters 2 and 3, the churches that God judges first, which is right, that God would judge the churches before he would judge the world. And then the things which must take place after this, which will contain the rest of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus. And then he says, immediately I was in the spirit, which we take it to mean that he was having a vision, that the spirit was moving in his life in such a way. He heard the voice and immediately he was in the spirit. Was this a vision? Was this God actually taking him into the throne room? Was this time travel? Some have suggested that he literally goes to the time right before the tribulation and he's actually seen the things that happen right before then. I don't know that we can answer those, but he is in the spirit. And then he says, and behold, which is like, this is amazing. The first thing that catches his eyes, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And that's a capital O there. Looks a little funny when you look at your Bible, but it's a capital O because it's the one, the one who's sitting on the throne. And he who sat there was like Jasper and Sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance of an emerald. This would talk about the glory of God. And we'll talk about that for a moment. These sapphire and Jasper would speak of his glory. 
the rainbow above the throne that he saw would speak of God's faithfulness. Remember that after the flood, God said, I will give you the rainbow so that you will know that I will never destroy the earth again by water. And so it is a sign of a promise of the faithfulness of God. When you think that God has complete and total sovereignty, God can do anything God wants to do. God isn't going to violate his nature, but God can do anything he wants to do. And then God limited himself by making promises to us. And then God gave us a sign that every time we see the rainbow, we're supposed to think God's faithful. God's going to keep his promises. Every time you see one, that ought to be what enters into your mind. Our God is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. And even above the throne room, there is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Now, the first thing he sees is the throne room. I mean, the throne that's in the throne room, right? Which is why we call it the throne room. And there are several things that the Bible tells us God does from his throne. We looked at these last week. We see that God is active on his throne. The Bible tells us that he, that he tests the sons of men. So he's testing everybody. And that he tests those who are righteous. So God's testing you and me. And that he judges those who are wicked from his throne. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, chapter 7, we see that God is judging from his throne. He's not passive. The idea of a, of a deist was that, the, the idea of a deist is that God created the world and then set things in motion and then backed away and isn't active. But the Bible shows us that God is very active and even today is judging from his throne. The Bible tells us that God's throne will never end. It is everlasting. We will one day stand in front of that throne. The Bible tells us that we have access to the throne, even now, that we can go to the throne. Hebrews tells us that we can go to the throne to receive grace for help in a time of need. So not only does God test from his throne and judge from his throne, but God also provides grace and helps us in our time of need and that we can go boldly before the throne. Isaiah tells us that the throne of God is high and lifted up. This is a place of, of glory. You walk in and see that throne and it is, uh, it is high and lifted up. Psalms 47 tells us that God reigns over all the nations from his throne. He's still reigning over nations. He's not only judging people and nations and groups, uh, he, but he's judging, but he's, but he's reigning over the nations. And finally, God's oversees angels from his throne, which is an amazing thing. God's on his throne. He's given directions to angels and angels are going out and doing the things that God tells them to do from the throne. This is Psalms 103, 19 and 21. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, Heed, heeding the voice of his word, bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. So God commands his angels and they minister to us who have life and they're about doing the things that God has called them to do. Now, when he looked at that throne, he saw the, the jasper and the sardis stone on it, which would speak of the glory of God. You couldn't have the throne and the one sitting on the throne who is the King of kings and Lord of lords without having the glory of God represented. And it's represented by those jewels. So let's just spend a couple of moments thinking about God's glory. 
glory is glory is described by the most splendorous thing of someone or something. When you see a lion and he's roaring, you see the glory of a lion. You see the glory of a, of a, of a deer. You see the, the glory of God. It's the, it's the most glorious, it's the most splendorous thing you see about a thing or a person. And the Bible tells us that Jesus revealed to us the glory of God. This is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten Father, full of truth and grace. Jesus was spoken of in the Old Testament as bringing glory to the area that he would be ministering. This is Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a, a Bible series done by the Discovery Channel called The Bible. I'm sure you guys are familiar with it. When the Old Testament was being played, it was extremely popular. But when they hit the New Testament, when they hit the Gospels, it, it jumped by millions of people watching it. Because Jesus is the glory of God. And there's something about him that is compelling. I think we're seeing the same thing today with the show, The Chosen. Now, there are a few things I don't like about The Chosen, but I, I think that's probably true about every pastor. When they start doing things that aren't biblical and it brings in other implications. I had somebody stop me the other day and go, hey, I never knew that Nicodemus was called to be an apostle. That's in The Chosen. And I said, that's because he never was. <laughs> so there's certain things that drive me crazy. But Joe Rogan, was talking to someone about seeing the chosen and being compelled by watching it and seeing it and being moved and things he never knew. When people can see Jesus, they see the glory of God. And when they see true Bible, which is what I think makes the chosen powerful, not all the little in-between stuff that they're making up, but when, they, when Jesus is healing the paralytic, when Jesus calls Peter from the boat, those are the powerful moments that you see. And God's glory is being revealed through Christ. A few years ago, there was a book that was written called The Day America Told the Truth. It was a survey of Americans and it was supposed to be all anonymous. And you were asked a series of questions on every topic you could possibly see. And there was a, a section on religion. And in that section, they asked people what they thought about the evangelical church. And the responses were overwhelmingly negative. A little while later, they asked people what they thought about Jesus. And the responses were overwhelmingly positive. So if, if, if the evangelical church is overwhelmingly negative and Jesus is overwhelmingly positive, then we're doing a poor job of helping people see Jesus, which is what we really should be all about. Lifting Jesus up, letting see people see Christ. Jesus said, if I'd be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And yes, I think he's talking about the cross, but I think he's talking about more than the cross. Our goal is not to do anything out of selfish ambition, but to simply lift Christ up. Because if you lift Christ up, how can people not help but be compelled by that if they truly see Jesus? I heard someone say, get on fire for Jesus and people will come to watch you burn. All right, well, I like that. I like being on fire for Jesus and people coming to see somebody who's really fervent and set on fire for him. But lift Jesus up. 
Let people see him. Be honest and put out there who Jesus really is on a regular basis. And people are going to be compelled because he reveals the glory of God. Hebrews tells us this again. Hebrews 1, 3. Who being the bright, talking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So when we think of the glory of God on the throne in heaven, it's helping us to understand the grandness of God. But Jesus is the one who carried the glory down here. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Shekinah glory, which is not a term you find, find in the Bible. I, I understand the connection between the, the original language, uh, but it's, churches will say that during the, the sermon or the worship, all of a sudden the Shekinah glory will come down and they'll try to take video of it and the video is always a little bit like strange, like that looks like a smoke machine. It doesn't really look like the glory of God. And I'm, I'm just... You guys know me by now. I'm skeptical. When someone tells me they went to a church and gold dust fell on them, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on. When they, when they say I went to a church and the, the pastor picked up his Bible and oil, the anointing oil was dripping off the pastor's Bible. I'm like, yeah. Or, you know, like a magician, there's some capsule he popped and look, the oil's all pouring off my Bible. I'm just skeptical. I... I don't know that God would do those. We don't see those things happening in the scriptures, not in church, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. The apostles didn't write about these things. So what is this glory, this so-called kind of glory? We would call it um, the cloud of God's glory. Isaiah 6, 4 says, and the posts of the door were shaken. This is another heavenly vision, right? So you're going to see glory there. The, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, this is an angel. And the house was filled with smoke. Now there's an altar there too because an angel took a coal from an altar and touched the lips of Isaiah to purify him. So some have suggested this smoke isn't the glory of God, but is instead smoke from the altar. However, there's another verse that helps us with that. Leviticus, uh, still speaking of the glory as a cloud. Leviticus 16.2 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place. This is in the tabernacle where they put the Ark of the Covenant. It says inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the Ark, lest he die. For I will appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. So as God would show up in a cloud. Remember, there was a cloud by day and a fire, a pillar, a pillar of fire by night. And that over the Ark was this, this cloud in Ezekiel 10 we see the glory leaving outside the temple through the east gate and out of Jerusalem because the people had, had turned to, to idol worship. But in Revelation 15, 8, this is later on in the book of Revelation, right? The temple was filled with smoke, it says, the glory of God. So here's a reference to the smoke being the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So this temple in heaven is filled with the glory of God that is so thick that no one can even enter. Isaiah 6, 3 says, And one cried to another saying, Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The earth today has his glory in it. When you stand on a mountainside and you look out at a beautiful vista or sunset, 
And you see, that's to remind you that there is a beautiful creator who created such beautiful things. But the Bible also tells us there will come a day in Numbers 21, 14, where God's glory here on earth will even be greater. It says, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. At, at some time, the Lord spoke in Numbers. As he lives, the, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, one more thing about the glory that's up there in that throne room and that Jesus revealed here on earth. Jesus prayed that you would have that glory in you. In John 17, Jesus said, Father, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the world began. And for those, I don't know how he mentions us, but he brings us up and he says that I might share my glory with them. The Bible in Colossians says that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we too have the glory of God as we live our lives here. We too are to represent Christ in such a way that people would see our good works and glorify God. Now, Jesus is the express image of the living God. You are not. And so I understand we're not, we don't have a one-to-one -one correlation there. But it is a pretty amazing thing that you and I have the glory of God in us. And people can see God's glory in us as we step out to do the things that God's called us to do. I believe that's by the empowering of the Spirit. I, I believe it's by God calling you and using you, filling you, gifting you, that the glory of God is revealed. So that's the third thing that we see, the throne, and then the, the, or the second, the, the throne, the one on the throne, and then the glory that's on the throne, which represents the one on the throne. And then fourth, it says, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes who had crowns of gold on their head and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. So this is not the only place where it's said that there are thrones in the throne room. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees in a vision and he says, I looked and I saw thrones being set up and I saw the ancient of days and he describes him and then one like the son of man coming to the Ancient of Days on the clouds and receiving power and glory and dominion forever and ever. So there are thrones that are around the throne of God. And you might say, well, what are those about? Well, the Bible says that you, we saw this earlier in Revelation, that the overcomers are going to set on Christ's throne as Jesus set on his Father's throne. We're told we're going to rule and reign over angels which I'm persuaded nobody really knows what that means. It's just something God threw in there to kind of make us go, huh? Huh? What does that mean? I'm going to rule and reign over angels? So who are these 24 elders? And it might seem like it would be an easy question to answer, but it hasn't been. Scholars are strongly divided on it. First of all, they are not angels. And there are some scholars who believe that these 24 thrones are set up with 24 angels. They're not angels. We know this for sure. Number one, these guys are called elders and angels are never called elders, but men in the church are called elders. Angels are never called elders. Number two, they have crowns and angels never have crowns, but there are five crowns in the Bible that you and I are told that we can receive. So the church has crowns. Now, 
you would think that this could be the 12 sons of Jacob representing Israel who God worked through to bring the Messiah and the 12 apostles who God is working through now to bring people to Christ until the end of the age. However, it's not that easy because it's not quite as easy to connect these guys to the 12 sons of Israel especially. Although, I don't think we can rule that out completely. I haven't been completely convinced when I'm studying it that that might not be the case. I hear the arguments and I understand the arguments and a lot of guys who I really respect will say they can't be the, the 12 sons of Israel. Dr. Ed Heinsohn, who has passed away, going to be with the Lord here recently, is one of them that says that. And I respect him greatly, especially when it comes to the area of prophecy. Mark Hitchcock is another one. So I don't think it could be completely ruled out. But it looks like they represent, they, they definitely represent believers. Because a little bit later on in Revelation 5, 9, here's the song the 24 elders sing. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us. This is the 24 elders singing and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So this may be a representation of the church with these 24 seats. And you say, well, why 24 to represent the church? Why not 12? Interestingly, when David was setting up the, the tabernacle and bringing in the ark, there were 24,000 Levites that he set up into 24 divisions to take care of the tabernacle. It's interesting. I don't know the complete and total connection between the two, but 24 is not a completely unbiblical number for that. Um, I think the biggest application for us is that they represent us. That we will one day be there before Christ. We will be ruling and reigning. It was the 24 elders who said, redeemed us out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, in verse 5, we see activity on the throne. So, from the throne room, we see the 12, 24 elders in front of it, and then we see there's activity on the throne. This is Revelation 4, 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, a voice. So, throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, the throne of God is mentioned 13 times in total. So 12 more times after this, the, the throne is mentioned. And we see that from the throne comes lightning and thunder and voices. And so this is, like I said, not a typical day in the throne room. This is God getting ready to judge the world. And on Mount Sinai, when the law was given, there was lightning and thunder there as well. And God is on the throne getting ready to judge it's a very active moment that he comes to this when he sees this happening. And then it says that there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now we met them before when we were looking at the churches, the seven churches, but the seven spirits of God are the, is the Holy Spirit. It's a reference, seven being the number of completeness and we're going to see this throughout the book of Revelation. And these are not seven angels before the throne of God because Jesus has them 
by, these, by, by the seven spirits, he sees things that are all around the world. Zechariah references uh, seven lamps that represent the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah 4.2. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking. And there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes and seven lamps. And if you go to Zechariah 4, read just the first part of that passage, you see that it represents the Holy Spirit, these seven lamps. In Revelation 5, 6, we meet them again. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though he had been slain. This is the next chapter, right? That's what we're going to get in a few weeks. Having seven horns, power, a horn is a representation of power and prophecy. So having complete power and seven eyes, omniscience, he sees everything, which are the seven spirits sent out into the earth. So the Lamb of God who is slain is Christ who has sent the Holy Spirit out into the world. He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. All of this together gives us good confidence that what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit speaking of perfection. There are also the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit, which we find in Isaiah 11:2. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Talking about the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the, spirit, and the fear of the Lord. So seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. I don't know that they're connected to the seven spirits, the way it's referenced there. But remember, the book of Revelation is full of signs. It says that in the beginning, that God sent and signified these things. The term signify in chapter one means there's going to be signs. That means we're going to end up with some mystery. And, and why did God use so many signs to speak to us these things? I think that the signs are timeless. I also think that at this point in time, remember, John is on the island of Patmos because he's been arrested for being a Christian. And he's writing about a one world emperor who's going to be destroyed by God. And so to write the Holy Spirit, having him write these in signs would, would help to protect Christians as the book of Revelation is circulated among the churches that this was going to be circulated to. And so we're going to have some mystery. We're going to find ourselves going, boy, why didn't he just say what it is instead of giving us these signs for what they are? There are reasons for that. Besides that, it brings a whole lot more interest when you start looking and wondering, who, who, is, who is this harlot that's riding a beast that's called Babylon, right? Which we'll get to, not here, not today. So the next thing that we see in our tour of the throne room is before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. And immediately when you start researching what it is, you find people start talking about water. Water represents judgment because God destroyed the world with judgment. Water represents deliverance because God divided the water and delivered the children of Israel. So the sea of glass represents judgment and deliverance. Uh, water represents God's direction because you swallowed Jonah up and spit him up on the shore of Nineveh. Water represents war. And so if things are getting fiery for war, but it doesn't say it was a sea. It says it was a sea 
of glass like crystal. And a little bit later on, in Revelation 15, 2, listen to how it describes the sea of glass. And I saw something like a sea of glass. So he describes it here as something like a sea of glass. He's, he's struggling with words to be able to communicate to us what he's seeing. He says, mingled with fire. So back here, it's like crystal, but here it's mingled with fire, maybe changing as the judgments start coming upon the earth. And those who have victory over the beast, this is interesting. So those who have victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass and having harps of God. Now there's where you get harps in heaven, by the way. I would have liked it a little more if it was an electric guitar in heaven, having electric guitars. But it's harps. But those who are victorious over the beast and all of the things of the beast stand on the sea of glass. So I've got to see this as a place before God's throne of victory over the world, over the enemy. Maybe this isn't a normal feature in the throne room. Maybe it's a feature that's there for the tribulation period, for those who are going to come out of the tribulation period and have victory. And by victory, it probably means death. It probably means they stood against him. They didn't take the mark of the beast. They stayed faithful and true. And they did it even unto death. And there they stand on the sea of glass. I don't think it's water. I don't think you can go to Jesus stilling the water to, to try to talk about this. I don't think that you can um, talk in the Old Testament when it says it is God who strides on the water. I think you can use that when you're teaching Jesus walking on the water. And the passage of Psalms, it says it's God who walks on the, who strides on the water, but not here. I think this speaks of our victory that we have over this world, but specifically for those in the tribulation, those who will be left behind, those who will become Christian, and those who will face that great temptation of, I can take the mark or I can die and will not take the mark and will be standing before the throne of God, each with their electric guitar. I'm not going to change the word of God, each with their harps of God. <clears throat> now here, the last thing that I want us to see tonight as we're looking at this, and now events start to happen. We don't just, we get all the pieces in place for the throne room, and the next thing that happens is these angels start to fly around, and that's what we find here. Next, it says, and in the midst of the throne, and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And I'm not going to take time to describe them here now because I want to do this next week. I want to see, are these cherubim? Are these seraphim? What's the difference between cherubim and seraphim? What's the difference between angels, a standard angel? What's the difference between an angel that's called a prince and an angel that's not? Again, what is the archangel? What, um, what does it mean that Michael is the prince over nations and do all nations? have angels over them and demons are called principalities and powers. And if Michael, the archangel is called the prince over Israel, are there demonic forces over nations as well? Does the United States have a demonic force that could be called the prince of the United States? And is there a great prince, an angel that would be over the United States? So we'll talk about all of these things next week and we'll talk about the work of angels. But three things in closing for today. Number one, for the Christian, 
God's throne is a place of grace, testing, and provision. No wonder the Bible tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. When you see him on his throne, see him as he is. But for us, it's a place of grace, undeserved favor. It's a place of testing. And I don't like being tested, but God does it. I never liked tests when I was in school either, but God does it. And Peter tells us that the result of testing is that we would come, fo come forth like refined gold purified in the fire. That's what God wants to do with our faith, that our faith would come forward like refined gold purified in the fire. And provisions, that you can go to God. Do you have a need now? Do you have a need for your family? God is there, boldness to go before the throne. Number two, we too bear the glory of God. Now I said it before, not to the degree that Jesus did, but we bear the glory of God and I want to know how to help people see that. That I can live my life in such a way that they would see it and glorify God, but they would also see Christ in me. And I think if I've got to do it, we could probably make a whole sermon about this. If you got to do it, you need to not have selfish ambition. You need to do things for Christ and for his glory. Probably looks a little different than things that take place because we all struggle with this. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle with selfish ambition. So it looks a little different, but I want people to see the glory of God in me. I know it won't be like they see it in Christ, but a little piece of that, a little bit of that, where people can start seeing me and getting excited about God and living for God. Seeing you and being excited for God, living for him. Number three, Jesus is the express image of the glory of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at what Jesus did. If you want to know what makes God angry, you look at Jesus turning over the tables. If you want to know what God is like towards sin, you see how he responded to the woman who wept at his feet. You see how he responded to the chief tax collector. Not just a tax collector, which people called sinners, but the chief tax collector, that when he left his house, he said, today salvation has come to this house. You know what, you know what the name Joshua means? Jesus' name in Hebrew? Salvation. Salvation had come to his house. Jesus is the glory of God. We look at him to learn more about God. And if you find yourself at a distance from him, then just start looking again. Look closely at the way Jesus responded to people. Look at the mercy, the compassion that he had, the things that made him angry and the things that gave him joy. He said of two Gentiles, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. He commended people for their faith. May we walk in faith to please Christ and see more of God by seeing more of Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to take a look around the throne room today, see all of the different things that are there and see how they speak to us. And Lord, we pray that we would show your glory, that we would be at a place where people would be able to see us and see you and be drawn to you. Lord, we also pray that we would see your glory in Christ. 
And Lord, thank you for when we can do that, when we can lift up Jesus, when the world can get a glimpse of him and be excited for what they see. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.